Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to Genuine Humans Podcast, and I'm here with the fabulous Wendy Christie, my co-host. Hello, Wendy. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very good. Very good. And today, I'm a bit excited because we are joined by Sally Henderson, and Sally is very well known in our industry. Uh, She's a high-stakes leadership mentor working with senior leaders and teams, and I want to know all about that, Sally. So welcome, Sally Henderson. Oh, thank you both. I've been so excited to do this talk with you and conversation. So I'm just delighted to be your guest. Fabulous. Well, first of all, do you want to just get a bit more of a flavor of of what you're actually doing and and how you work with your your clients? Yeah, I'd love to. So for me, the real joy and challenge comes from really working with the senior leadership team and top senior leaders of a brand or well-known creative agency. And the reason for that is because actually those people often get the least love. You know, they're there to make sure all the wheels turn, no matter what the crisis, no matter what the challenge. They often look after themselves last, which I absolutely don't agree with Simon Sinek on that. I think if you're not looking after your own needs, how on earth can you look after anyone else's properly? So I come in and I'm there in high stakes situations. So for me, there's some jeopardy in the room. There's some change that's really valuable not just to the organization, but also to the growth and career success of the leaders and teams that form that organization, where there's urgency in the room. You know, we've got important work to do and we've got to get rubber on the road quickly. And also we just have to help these senior leaders to cope better with what are sometimes the most ridiculous requests on the shortest of timeframes at the highest levels of challenge and worry. And to me, it's just madness to expect such leaders to always have the answers and cope by themselves because I liken it although it's a cliche and forgive me because we'll find on this chat I'm quite the queen of cliches <laughs> um, but when you get those Olympic athletes at absolute peak performance they are only at peak performance because they've got the dedicated team of specialists invested in their talent and their unique needs and it's just the same with a leader you know you can have the best talent on the earth but if it's not being supported nurtured challenged and developed in the right way it is never going to reach its potential so what i do is i come in at these high stake moments perhaps there's been an emergent acquisition perhaps the company's changing there's been new leaders come in the team has to upskill or just an, you know the new ceo's come in and it's hang on should we just help you with this massive challenge that's ahead of you where you've got no grace period to learn <laughs> and we're all expecting to solve all the biggest problems that we haven't solved before you <laughs> So I come in and I look to always make my work two things. It's got to be bespoke. Mm -hmm. I'm passionate that every single bloody human on this planet is different and unique. And so are the cultures, so are the businesses. So I'm always coming in assuming I know nothing. Because by that way, I'm really learning what is my client telling me? And perhaps quite importantly, what are they not telling me? Because my role is to help shape that brief, not take it and deliver it. And then what I do is I apply a beautifully structured program called The Real Method, which is my own proprietorial program I've created, just to signpost and make it easier for clients in senior roles to learn in the most effective and enjoyable way. 
So it's all under a philosophy of smart, simple, because my clients are busy enough already with lots to think about. And I then think, right, what can I take from that model that I know works, which is equipping the clients with a toolkit, both practically and emotionally, so they can excel when the stakes are high. But what do I need to bring that's unique? You know, what's my my biggest power along with my structure is my intuition. Mm -hmm. So every single engagement with me will have similarities because I I say to my clients, I hate to tell you, you're not special. (laughs) There's other people in these roles who have the same challenges as you. Who knew? But at the same time, you're absolutely special. So what can I bring to make this right just for you, your team, your business at this moment in time? For me, it's all about results. And those results is that I'm taking the best, making them better so they can excel. And you've kind of refined that over the years and you've got your own methodology. But can I just take you back a little bit? How, how did you get to to be doing this? And, and you know, tell us a little bit more about your, your early career and what, what brought you to do this. I'd love to. So... I'm like most people, I think. I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. (laughs) My career kind of found me by a bit of destiny, luck and fate, which I fell into the recruitment world. And I was a bit snobby, I'll be honest about that, because that's not why I went and got my 2-1, goddammit, in international business, because the barriers to entry in recruitment are very low. And so as a result, you get a lot of people who go into that industry who actually aren't very good, Mm. let's be honest, whose, whose agenda is not the right agenda, it's just to make money. And my belief was always that the agenda was to help, <laughs> to do to do life-changing and business-changing work with utter integrity at all times. And just be that trusted guide and counsel when people were going, where do I take my career? How do I build my team? And so I, I got into my early career into recruitment, mm. um, but purely, as I said, just by temping, actually, and then that kind of leading to one job after another and then my real lucky break I guess in finding my passion around recruitment is when I got to recruit for the brand consultancy world because I just loved it and I understood it I did it as part of my degree and I found my tribe you know my first tribe was supporting that industry and then I guess what really was important was that I I spent a whole few first career in really becoming the best recruiter I could be But what stood out was that everyone said to me, you're not like all the others. And that's no disrespect to those that are great, because I think you get a great recruitment partner, they're amazing, they're your best asset, keep them close. Absolutely. But I I love the mentoring and coaching. I really only use recruitment to get paid (laughs) to do the mentoring and coaching. And it pays very nicely, thank you very much. And that also led to me having my own company in recruitment, where I had, it's called the career company, and I built my own methodology. I joke that I'm a frustrated planner meet psychologist. (laughs) Uh, I'm all about methodologies and techniques. And and I built a business called The Career Company over seven years, which I put my heart and soul into. And I made every entrepreneur found a mistake in the book. (laughs) And although technically that business had a lot of success, we were a market leader in our field. We were trusted by the best brands and the best talents. And the phone never stopped ringing. So in a way, you were like, what's your problem, Sally? That's a really successful business. And it was. But I actually wasn't happy, Tamara. Mm. Fundamentally, I never wanted a recruitment company. I only did it because I couldn't find my passion. And I had to be brave enough to walk away from that business. You need that passion. You absolutely need that passion because it catches up on you if, if you don't. Yeah, so my passion, well, I, I got I finished recruitment by mistake. And then that never resonated with me. I was like, hang on, shouldn't I have this beautiful career that goes with my, my degree and all those years I studied? And recruitment was never my choice. So... Here's a, here's a fun fact. I got myself fired way back in the day. 
um, because I got stuck in success. It's what I call stale safety. And I've been headhunted by every competitor, but I knew, which was great. And my ego was probably a little big. That's, you know, I was in my twenties, you know, look at me, cock of the North, only down South. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it probably just got a little bit too big for my boots. And so before I set up my agency, I actually told every man and his wife how unhappy I was at work because I was too scared to move. I got stuck. Is that like a little self-sabotage, is that right? Oh, my God, with the biggest sticker yeah. on it. Utter self-sabotage, which I'll, I would never do again. And I would counsel people. It's probably not the wisest way forward. I just, because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I became paralyzed by indecision. I just... I knew I had to break it, but I wasn't brave enough to break it at the time because I didn't, I genuinely hadn't a clue on what that career path should be for myself. But I kind of knew it wasn't recruitment, which is why I didn't want to go work for a competitor. And I actually had no intention of setting up my own agency. And it taught me a lot about how not to exit someone from your business. And, you know, that company was quite interesting. There was lots of reasons why I left or got myself fired. But it devastated me at the time. It absolutely devastated me because this is also back before it was cool to get fired. Mm. <laughs> you know, this was, you know, my my, uh, my grey hair. It was a shock and it was quite embarrassing as well because also I didn't have control. You know, I gave I gave this is a bit of a cliche. I told you I was a queen. I gave my power to someone mm. else, and that was a biggest the biggest error I think in setting myself up for great change. But then I went to scratch the itch of working in management consultancy. So I worked for an organizational design consultancy thinking, this is why I got my degree (laughs) to work as a management consultant. And you know what? Although it was the most lovely company I worked for, amazing people, they picked up the bruise and battered me and gave me a home for a year. I just was a bit bored. Mm. (laughs) I missed the agency life. I missed the pace. I missed the commerciality. I missed the deal making. I missed the kind of... uh, fizz of recruitment you know it's a very energy bubbly diverse job and if you do recruitment well oh my god you've got to have so many skills under your belt and I missed using the diversity of of that skill range and so I recruited my best friend into my job who'd been made redundant and you should be better than me and I gave away my safety net of of income security with again thinking I really don't know what I'm going to do but I thought I can't find the job I want so I'm going to have to just go back and do recruitment and therein lies the language, go back. You can never go back. Yeah. That's why I think I never loved it fully. And I only did it for seven years because I actually never wanted to set up a recruitment agency. I only did it because I was good at it. I loved the people. I loved the industry. I could make great money. And I thought, sod it. If I can't find someone to work for, I'll just have to go and do it myself. And so I set up my own recruitment agency. Little me, in a really little kind of corporate boring office opposite King's Cross. And then just built it from the ground up. And really was proud of it, actually. And the name, you know, I did all of it, the naming, the branding, the website. Well, I got a branding person to support me, but I came up with the whole identity and I built it from the ground up. But here's where I made all the mistakes. My ego, my self-worth and my whole identity was utterly entwined with the career company. Mm. And I had no off switch. I didn't really have a social network outside of my industry. So... There was always maybe a bit of an agenda with people I was hanging out with because I was a headhunter. So I could maybe be of use at some point. So I, I think I had a lot of great relationships, but I didn't leave space for those purely private relationships. And I think I just ultimately got to the point when I had my first child, my husband came to work with me in the business. And that's another, that's a whole other podcast yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> Working with partners, yeah. <laughs> he came in and we... We got married. We had our first baby a lot earlier than we were expecting. And I also had this epiphany when my son 
who's now 14 and six foot two, when I had my son as a baby and the business wasn't ready for me to go on to maternity, I just had this like almost like look down a 10 year road and thought, I don't want this. And if I'm doing this job in 10 years, I'm going to be a bit of a bitter, stuck, kind of unhappy person, which you sometimes meet in the headhunting world where their career hasn't grown mm-hmm. because they've been building everyone else's careers and they just get a bit stuck as, as a human. I thought, I don't want that to happen to me. And actually, this business is bloody hungry to feed every month financially. I've now got my baby. My husband also worked in the company. And he and I were talking. He wasn't happy either. And I just thought, I'm not A, doing justice to the lovely people who work with me because I'm not being a great employer because I don't actually want the business anymore. And this isn't making me happy. And my whole premise at that point in my career, which is what also is at the core of my work now, was you have a, I believe you have a fundamental right, a fundamental right to be happy and effective at work. And I was the biggest fraud out there because I wasn't. Mm. And I was waking up at 3am worrying about people and office and infrastructure and pipeline and growth and, you know, all the things that founders worry about, rightly so. But I wasn't having much joy. And my success wasn't making me happy. It really wasn't. I didn't feel fulfilled. I, and I just, I just outgrown the business. And the weird assumption people make when you're an entrepreneur and business owner is you have all this freedom in the world. (laughs) And oh my God, you have none. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, it's always down to you to make decisions. You you can only have freedom if the business allows you. Uh, And I just thought, I don't want this business anymore. And I've taken it as far as I want to take it. And it's got a lovely bit of equity cash-wise in it. I don't want to sell it because I don't know what I want to do. But I just know the right thing is to stop it. And it was the hardest, hardest decision to ever make to actively kill something I'd spent seven years of my entire life, had put my entire being into, and technically was really successful. <laughs> what a brave decision as well. But, you know, obviously the outcome has, it was, it's all been worth it and it was the right decision, but I can only imagine. It was, but, you know, making yourself and your husband redundant with your seven-month-old baby. So my baby, we started to wrap the company up through our own choice as well. There was no, you know, we could have kept it going. I'm doing it now if I wanted. When Hugo was seven months, we were deciding to wrap the company up. And I'll never forget, I got a lovely HR consultant in. So we did everything properly, very ethically, you know, looked after everyone to the best of our abilities. They wanted to be, you know, the best employer to the end in terms of looking after people and looking after the clients and, you know, doing, doing right by everybody. But I didn't go on maternity till Hugo was 10 months old. Oh, gosh. Oh, goodness. Uh-huh. Yeah, not, not emotionally, not practically. My NCT group I used to rock up and I was always on the phone call. <laughs> I was always like, <laughs> you know. Uh, and it was exhausting. And I actually, looking back, don't know how I didn't fall over. And just, because I'm also a first-time mum. So, yeah, it was incredible clashing of worlds. And I, I remember going to make everyone redundant, which is also terribly painful, distressing for them. And my mum rang up and said, Hugo won't take his bottle. <laughs> And I went, he just has to, Mum. <laughs> I cannot I cannot go there. You have to have you just I can only do this. Mm-hmm. So bless you know, she had to cope with that. But yeah, when when we did come away, I don't want to glamorize it. I think in all honesty, if I'd known how difficult it was gonna to be to do what I ended up doing, would I have done it so glibly? I'm not sure. <laughs> not glibly, but you know, so fully, yeah. so completely. But then that set me on the path to okay, I've done the recruitment thing. I it's not going to be my life work. What is my life work? Because I didn't know the answer to that still. 
and that set me on the path of just lots of exploration um, going I went and scratched an itch working with a great guy called Chris Van Sommer and so hey Chris if you're listening you still rock you're the best you were you know, one of the only few people I looked up to in recruitment because you're a master of your craft uh, a center door was his company and I worked for him thinking right maybe if I go into a pure pure search executive you know proper headhunting that might be enough it wasn't you know, no, no, no reflection on him and his business. It was just, yeah, this is great, but that also doesn't fulfill me working at that level. And so then that just set me on the path of looking at the coaching world and investing in training myself around coaching and development. I also went into a disastrous partnership, a 50-50 business partnership that didn't work, but taught me so much because, again, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so seven years ago was when I actually went enough is enough. And let's put this, let's put something proper together. Let's commit to something that I can really build. And that started me on the path of building this business now, the high stakes leadership company. And I love it. I love everything about it, but it's been a mountain. I think what was really fascinating as well as my ego had to absolutely leave the building. I naively thought I can piggyback from being top of my game in recruitment to really, you know, that same level of, kind of established knowledge in well, it's not actually coaching I'm definitely a leadership mentor not a coach because I'm too directive to be a coach but I had to work that out as well that took me about five years to work out <laughs> four years um, but that was that realization is oh my god I have to go back to utter utter basics and build from from nothing that was really wounding at the time but it was the best way because what I have now I adore it's my passion it's on fire we're doing a great um, thing in the world I believe in it it's unique and it brings me great joy and I'm absolutely happy and effective at work that's a, a lovely end to the career and obviously everything was pointing in this direction you just didn't necessarily know it <laughs> yeah everything I've never all my experience actually goes back to when I was 14 and I was naturally mentoring a, a foster mum about how to be a foster mum a lady I waitressed with about how to turn 50 I just have an innate natural gift I'm very blessed with to see people and to know what advice to give them that will help them at the right time. That's amazing. At 14, that's absolutely yeah. incredible. Well, can we go a bit back further, even further than that, actually, and talk about what you were like as a child um, and see if we can work out how that's influenced how you've ended up where you are in your career so far. So what were you like as a kid? Gosh, you know, when you ask this question, I had to really think <laughs> it's, it's it feels such a long time ago and I was like what was I like as a child and I think I was actually really insecure as a child really shy and not really comfortable with my own skin I never really knew where I fitted I didn't have the natural kind of friendship making muscles I, I did have good friends but I just I think felt so insecure all the time that you know, as a kid, I was just, I think, quite confused and anxious a lot of the time, actually. That's really tough. And, and so I wonder how you went from there to the 14-year-old who who was, was able to be this amazing, sounds like amazing source of support to to the, the foster parent, for example. Um, that's pretty incredible. And you'd said previously that you didn't know wanted to, you didn't know what you wanted to be when you grew up. Or did you have any particular childhood dreams that maybe not necessarily about career or the one thing my father always gave me and gives me is an incredible appreciation for nature and 
so I love nature. I used to rescue ducklings off the stream and come back in. I had a really idyllic country lifestyle. I used to come home from school and put the duck on the pond, <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally, and, um, and rehabilitate them and then reintroduce them to the wild. And my dad was always bringing home kind of little injured animals and we'd rehabilitate them and put them back in the wild. So at some point, my mum thought I'd go and do something in animal conservation or something, you know, looking after animals and, and contributing to that world. And so I think I thought that's what I would do, but not really. I never wanted to be a vet or anything, anything like that. Uh, and then I, in my sort of late teens or well, mid teens to like early twenties, I worked a lot in the hospitality industry. And at one point, I thought I might go down that road because I liked the whole people, sociological, organize efficiency, organization, and you know, reacting to needs. Quite similar to what I do now in a way, but just a different genre. But as a child, I just think it, I really. It could be was I an old head on a young shoulder, perhaps, you know, I had in a way this incredible wisdom of how to advise, I just know innately how to advise people around certain things, but had no idea how to behave at a party (laughs) or wasn't into fashion or being one of the cool kids, wasn't one of the square kids, just didn't really kind of fit anywhere. And, And I just think I got quite anxious about that as a child, actually. But when it came to helping others, and if the focus isn't on, wasn't on me, then I would sort of know exactly what to do. I'm not sure I still know how to uh, function at parties, if I'm absolutely honest. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have anyone in particular that you looked up to, whether that was a family member or a teacher or someone off the telly? Yeah, again, I love this question because I had to really think. And I'll be really honest, there was no one who instantly was like, oh, wow that particular person was a pivotal moment. And I'm so sorry if someone's listening to this and I've missed you. (laughs) But I I thought about it and I thought, you know, my father, in terms of that love of animals, that look up, make everything is worth saving. And that person who picks up worms and, you know, moves them off the road. You know, if there's an animal that needs your help, give it help. And my mum, I think, has been a constant inspiration for her just abundance of love. Like my mum didn't have the easiest of times growing up herself and her, my granny blessed her was very artistic, shall we just say. And <laughs> it was before her time. Oh my goodness me. Amazing lady, but quite forceful. And for, so for my mum to be so gentle and warm and loving and just so goddamn caring <laughs> uh, relentlessly, you know, she's so patient and understanding and kind and, and you know, literally unconditional love I think that role model of family and value and care coupled with the love of animals and the world and my dad's sense of adventure, you know, so I think my dad was a big reason I went backpacking in 1998 before any tech was around and got on a plane to India on my own oh my and landed at 2 o'clock Delhi, which I think in hindsight, how the hell did I do that? <laughs> but, you know, that, that was a, the biggest adventure and the biggest that was the biggest fundamental development part of my life. I think after uni, I did this trip and taught me more than university did in lots of ways, you know, in, in adventure and, and the world and just getting out of Ilkley, a lovely small Yorkshire, very kind of nice town and just, just getting on a plane and landing in India and going, oh my God, <laughs> this is mental. And my poor parents, I don't know how they did it because back in those days, you only phoned home once a month. Well, this is it. I'm just trying to picture it. I mean, my oldest is nearly 30 and, you know, I'm I'm still not keen if I don't hear from him. (laughs) Yeah, And there was a family, actually, I babysat for, um, Lynn and Martin. And I did re-look up to them because I just felt 
they were such a lovely couple. They were so, you know, I'm still in touch with them now. And they just, they were a lovely, for this quite anxious, little insecure teenager by this point, they were like a lovely extra point of safety in terms of just always being honest and direct, good fun. And they spoke to me like an adult. You know, they treated me like an adult. And I think when I was thinking who were inspirational and just gave me a nice kind of maybe North Star outside of my own family, I'd say that. Well, that's wonderful. And and how about, you know, during your career and, you know, up to today, have there been people um, who've given you, who've been an influence or given you that extra bit of support that you'd like to shout out? Yeah, there, there has. And um, again, I'm so sorry if I haven't remembered everybody because <laughs> I feel very blessed. I've come across many, many wonderful, generous, kind and helpful people um, and, and still do to this day. You know, tomorrow being one, I bumped into in Cannes this year and here we are now, you know, having this lovely chat. So again, I just feel lucky that I do get to meet such inspirational and wonderful people. So I see you tomorrow, okay? As much as you see everybody else. <laughs> Hanging around in queues before going into can parties. <laughs> but that's the only way to bond, hey? <laughs> But yeah, I'd say I went back to my early career and actually Eileen, who was the lady I advised about turning 50, she was quite a formidable maitre d' at a restaurant in my local village in Addingham who had a, was a real stickler for doing things to the best ability I remember being a young teenager going, does it matter if it's not the right saucer or the right size plate? And she's like, of course it matters. <laughs> and so she really taught me standards and, and quality control, which I've never let go of my whole career. And also through my hospitality career, there was other people I met who just really taught me the value of great client service and always doing your best, no matter how menial the task, you know, it all matters to the whole experience, what now we'd call customer experience <laughs> back then, just you know, being nice to people in the hotel really, or behind the bar. And then Jenny Child was one of the first people I worked with when I first came to London, first person I hired into a team when I worked in someone else's business. And, and Jenny and I just had this most incredible bond together. And hi, Jen, because I know she'll be listening. And Jenny learned to read my mind. And we were, I would do a half sentence and Jenny would finish it. And we were like just a formidable team. And she's the first person at work I found that true trust and absolute co-partnership with. And we, we were the classic sort of sum of one and one equaling three. And so I loved working with Jen when we first um, worked together many years ago now. And then my husband, David, actually, I met David through work and he's been an absolute rock through all these years, never wavered in his love and support and kindness, but he's also not a pushover. I'm quite a strong person. <laughs> I'm quite fixed in some of my opinions as well. And he's a good challenge to me. And we make a lovely parenting team as well. So I think that's really important. Funnily enough, I was chatting with Kerry Glazer just recently from the AAR, who we had a chance meeting in a we were both presenting. This is when I had no idea what I was doing. I think I'd just finished the career company. I was out there in the world trying to promote myself, not really kind of worked it all out at all. And the reason I mentioned Kerry is because she just was very generous in, in the queue with me when we were both waiting to present and just was so kind and, and just gave me that little boost. She, she saw me back then, you know, and, and just didn't have to be as nice as she was and as friendly. Recently, Mark Joblin, who is a lovely client of mine from NatWest, the... Um, chief group marketing officer just for showing me that wow leaders are so real yeah they are I know they are for my job but meeting Marg was just inspiring because she's so authentic she speaks so directly and she's she's just she makes it look easy 
you know, and, and she's very humble and I just really respect her as a leader. And then a couple of um, Andy Evans, who's an amazing guy locally here in Tunbridge Wells. He runs an incredible group with, with others, but Andy's our, Andy's our leader called the um, Tunbridge Wells Media Group. And the reason I mentioned Andy is because he's built a community of people where there's such trust, respect, joy from being together as a network. And he runs it brilliantly. And he's very, very generous with all his help and expertise and time to give us that platform. And, you know, he and I have just been very supportive to each other's journeys at different stages. And we've become buddies, you know, so getting that friendship at that stage and meeting through work, but also... Just that camaraderie, being on your own, being an entrepreneur can be very lonely. So having people where you can be true and just share all your highs and lows with no agenda, um, not on a paid piece either, you know, just as mates, that I think is very special. And then Chris, I've already mentioned, Chris Van Someren from the Headhunting Days, who was, oh my God, there are great people out there who are really professional and good at what they do. I'm glad I met you. And then the last one, I guess, on the list, I'm sure there's many, many more, though, um, is Felix Velardi. And we found each other through COVID. Sort of, I, I saw, I don't, didn't even know him, but I sent someone his way to help against a post. One thing led to another. We got chatting. He helped me come up with a positioning of high-stakes leadership mentor. And we, I did a bit of mentoring for him. Um, and he made me laugh when he said, oh, you're quite good at this, aren't you? I went, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> what did you expect? <laughs> but you see, back then, I didn't have the positioning. I didn't have the branding like I've got it. And most recently, you know, wonderful Karen Strutt's come in and done all the creative branding for me and really elevated it. And I've got a lovely team that I work with behind the scenes and they all help me to, to thrive because they do, they do the things that people don't see that matter just as much. And Sally, I think you're so right about the importance of the network because there's nothing worse than feeling a little bit alone when you're sort of running your, your own company. So I'm so pleased to hear about all of the networks that you're a member of. I'm going to shift gear and just ask you some, well, actually, I just want to ask you, what are you most proud of so far? I would say first and foremost, actually, my family, because I've got two beautiful sons who trust me as their mum to guide them through this world. And, you know, my PT actually said to me, you're one of the rare ones because you seem really happy with your husband. <laughs> Which I thought was quite funny because I genuinely am. So I think I'm most proud of going, having gone through difficult times, come out, you know, really have, David and I really have worked through a lot of challenges. Life has not always been easy. When you don't know what you're doing and you're building something and you've got to make the money, you've got to keep the roof over their heads. That's not a fun place to hang out. And this journey has been long and at sometimes, as I say, almost overwhelming. Um, hence, my empathy is quite high or very high with people going through tough stuff. But, you know, we've we've come out that, you know, come out the other side and we were strong as, you know, stronger than ever before. So I'd say pr privately that. And from a professional, I'm really bloody proud of my business. <laughs> I've pushed myself to the highest levels until I got it right or what I believed was right. And I still I'm not there. It's always a growth piece. But I'm. If I could swear, I would be like really profanity saying how proud I am of my business because A, I believe in it so fundamentally, um, but B, I think it does such an important job out in the world now more than ever. And if I can be that source of advice, safe space, counsel, acceleration, joy, release, whatever words you want to meet but to the people who are in really senior roles in our world of work, the cascade, the cascade effect of that is immense. And I, I'm proud of that. And I think, actually, you know, we've all been through tough times 
through the last few years. And and I think the focus on teams and, and high performing teams and on, on leaders is is so acute, but I'm guessing that you've probably seen some changes with with COVID and lockdown and, and the way that people are running their businesses. So so what what changes have you seen over the last few years? I think that's a really good question. I think it's one we should not forget to ask each other. I think the change I've seen most recently since COVID, before I go back to the COVID changes, is that people have just swept it under the carpet. Okay, for certain generations, we'll get the Bobby Ewing reference when he wakes up in the shower. (laughs) And it's all been a dream. Remember that. (laughs) And yeah, and it hasn't. And I think we're forgetting at our peril that teams, families, the world has been through and continues to go through just the most immense, unprecedented challenges ever, relentlessly. And I think, therefore, we should remember the to not make excuses and not make it a reason not to try, not to excel and not to invest, but also keep the kindness of like, you know, are you okay? Which I know has become a bit of a joke since good old this morning, but, you know, are you okay? Um, but not forgetting to ask those questions of one another. Funnily enough, I was doing a, an away day with an amazing client recently who very openly admitted that they dropped all the well-being check-ins that they'd done really effectively through COVID. They'd, that had come off the agenda and they realise, oh, my God, we're not asking those questions that we used to ask or making time to just check in with each other humanly <laughs> to see how we are. And we should do that again because that was really good when we did it. And, and how have we actually let that fall off the agenda? So I think emotional calibration is something very current I'm seeing out in, in teams, as well as what what even is a team, which not to sound too profound. But I ask my clients, can you name the role of the team leadership team today? Can you name its role, its purpose, its North Star and link that to a benefit? And normally they can't. Because in COVID, the role of the senior leadership team changed. It became crisis control. It became, you know, risk avoidance. It became care for people. It became a a battle to just goddamn survive. Yeah. Now, it's not that mode now. But have people really clarified going into the end of 2023, beginning of 2024, what is the role we believe our senior leadership team should be fulfilling? And then what is everybody's individual role in making that work brilliantly as a team so that one-on-one equals three thing happens from all being part of a team? So I think there's a whole piece around, do we even know what a good team looks like these days? Ways of working is still sporadic. There's no there's no norm. <laughs> you know, there's nowhere to hang your hat up or against. You know, it's still very unknown. And I think the thing that I saw that really derailed people and is still, I think, having lasting impact on energy reserves and resilience is the smashing together of worlds. You know, so back in the day, even if you hated your commute, it was a transition ceremony (laughs) and it was something you did to go from one way of working back into the home and get your emails done. And just the, you know, it might be horrific stood up on a train, but (laughs) you did at least have that time in theory, if you wanted it, whereas in COVID, especially with homeschooling, if you have children or young children, children you can't negotiate with, um, you open the door and it's like, wham, straight in your face. You're suddenly having to cope with all of your domestic stuff, having not even decompressed from your work stuff and vice versa. And the relentlessness of Zoom, you know, the fact that it's quite fun. was not funny. You know, people, including myself, if we're two minutes late, we're like, I'm so sorry so sorry i'm two minutes late oh God, yeah. and it's like the equivalent of 10 in the real world it's like it's two minutes we're okay <laughs> like, and people are being put in these back-to-back zooms 
so they're not even getting to move rooms or change up anything. And I think the pressure and the intensity is just not sustainable. And we haven't had to invest enough time, energy or resource to work out what's new and needed now because we're not having a global pandemic forcing us to change ways of working again. So I think there's a real problem that's building in the behind the scenes of going, how are you setting your teams up for success in ways of working? And, and no one has the answer with that and how to keep the eye. I'm a great believer in actually you should have difference between your personal and professional identity. And that's fabulous. Like why should we all be the same to everybody? That's a bit sad and bland. So I think also working out permission to not need to be on all the time. And also all these new techniques, I say new, forgive me, there'll be ones that are new and I'm not even referencing WhatsApp. It's not exactly new, is it? Slack. But, you know, in my day, you just had a computer and you walked home and that was it. You couldn't even have a phone, really. You know, or the phone was literally just a phone, not no email or anything. And now you're bombarded by comms and people are, and the rules of engagement, again, are different. So if, you, if someone's WhatsApping you, that's got as much power, if not more, than an email these days. So can you ignore it? <laughs> you know, so I think just the relentless demands and intensity on leaders has changed since COVID and hasn't recalibrated in any better way. The emotional burden on leaders, uh, especially CEOs, was huge in COVID because they had to suddenly look after themselves and everyone else to a much more different level. And also there was no one fit Saul was there. Some people had a, a relatively good time in COVID. It worked for them. Other people had the worst, most horrific time in COVID. You got to come, you got to look after that entire bandwidth in one organization. So I just think there's so many questions that got thrown up by the disruption that people haven't prioritized in answering because actually they're not seen as fundamental like emotion or calibration. So there's a challenge as well in teams of like, where does the role of employer start and stop? So I'm saying, look, an employer is not your best mate. <laughs> and yes, you've got to look after well-being. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying don't do that and care for your people. But I think there's a line when your job as an employer also stops and friends and family and different support networks step in. But I think, again, it's very difficult to work out what that line is. And it takes quite a brave employer to say, actually, we're not here to help you with those things because that's not cool. <laughs> and then you could also have people call you out on that and go that, oh, you're an awful employer because you're not doing that. And it's like, well, we can't be everything to everybody. So how do we be the best we can and attract the right people that the way we think is right works? And I think also bosses had a really difficult time because they were reacting to a lot of people's needs when COVID hit. And it, now they've got this war for talent, which I actually don't believe in that either. I think it's actually not getting recruitment right. <laughs> and we're not being strategic enough in your thinking and lots of other things. But don't get me wrong, it is difficult. People are, are worried about what, what to say or what to stand for as an employer in case it costs them talent, which they don't have any bandwidth to replace. So we've almost got a load of vanilla going around, you know, as in, well, we don't know quite what our leadership team role is. We don't quite know what our ways of working are. We probably don't quite know what our own leadership styles need to be in this current climate because we just don't have any time to think about it. And at the same time, we've got to deliver all these pressures, all these expectations and smile. <laughs> yeah, It's a lot. It, eh? is, it is a lot. And thank you for saying that about, you know, the fact that we, we can't forget what we've all been through because I, I think it has just been there's so much sort of pressure to just kind of keep going. But, you know, while, while you were talking, I was remembering that um, – uh, Wendy and I in the uh, exec team at the social element, we were doing daily check-ins with our team. And I think we might have done them for two months. It, it all seems like a long time ago, but it was very intense. And, and it's, I think it is like we are just 
pushing ourselves to just forget all about it and just crack on. But actually, I think it is important to remember. But let's have a little think about going back to to you and the fact that this is the the Genuine Humans podcast. This bit is all about getting to know you a bit more personally. So I'll let Wendy kick off with question number one. Yes, a nice easy one. What's your idea of the perfect weekend? Not doing a lot, (laughs) to be honest. My my work is very intense, which I love, um, but I need to bring my A game and my energy every day. And so when it comes to the weekend, I like to just relax, go in nature, walk the dog. And I have a guilty habit of loving crap telly. (laughs) We're right there with you. No judgment here. (laughs) (laughs) Chewing gum for the brain and it's wonderful. But I'm I'm missing, like I need another Breaking Bad or, or, um, you know, a great thing to get into. It's got a load of series for me to keep, keep entertained. But yeah, friends, family, nature, relax and just, just be. That sounds idyllic. If we were to have a snoop around in your fridge, what would we find? So I laugh at this because in the old days, there'd be a really good selection of champagne because I, anyone knows me well, bloody love champagne, everything about it. And we'll drink it till the cows come home. But I'm on a health kick right now. So my fridge is reflecting that. And I've actually got a plethora of HelloFresh meets, meets Planthood, whatever they're called, because I keep forgetting to cancel them. <laughs> I've got <laughs> way, way too many healthy meals that we can pretend we're cooking at home. And also gives us a good excuse to get the kids involved and a bit of chaos because the fridge ends up getting a bit messy and, you know, out of sync. Um, and then I get that weird nerdy satisfaction from sorting out again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's one of your bucket list travel destinations? Oh, I've got two. Okay. Can I break the rules? Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so Vietnam, because when I went to Asia uh, Back in 98, obviously didn't even know my husband existed and certainly hadn't had my kids. But I said, look, I kept seeing these families and I thought one day I want to bring my family when I when I eventually hopefully have one to Asia and to experience the difference of culture and to see the world. And, and, and I'd not gone to Vietnam before. So we're doing that next March or going oh, well in the world. You can never quite know, can you, with international travel these True. days, if it's actually going to happen. But all going well. We're going on a trip of the lifetime all four of us to Vietnam for three weeks next March. And and again, I'll be really honest, back in the day, I said, I'm going to take my kids and we'll backpack and we'll, they'll see the real world. I'm so sorry, I'm not that person. <laughs> they can see the real world, but also have a bit of comfort, right? <laughs> and know that this is not normal for them. <laughs> they go out and earn it themselves. Um, and then my other one is Canada. I've always had this kind of fascination with Canada and going to see the beauty and, and the contrasts and, and everyone raves about it. I've only ever met nice Canadians. So that's another place I want to go. Fantastic. How would you fare in a zombie apocalypse? Good. I'm a fighter. Excellent. Okay. Do we need to go into any more detail there? I just, if you set me something to do, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. I won't And I'll just look for the way. Well, how can we? I guess it goes with my job, hey? <laughs> <laughs> well, what do we need to do to survive? And... And just get on with it. I'm Yorkshire. Like, don't make don't make too much drama. Hopefully, and get on with it. And and being Sally Henderson, I suspect you would then uh, create the zombie apocalypse methodology. <laughs> and, and make sure I had lipstick with me to do it. Exactly. <laughs> How would your friends describe you? Oh my god! I think this is the best question I've ever been asked because I actually went to town on this. Uh, I do a lot of team insight gathering when I'm getting ready for working with a team, so I treated this like a 
like a prime insight <laughs> gathering approach. <laughs> and so I, I asked some friends and I actually encourage anyone listening to this podcast, don't wait to be asked that question. It's the, it's kind of, it sounds a bit morbid, but it's like going to your own wake, but you haven't died. <laughs> um, and my friends were very kind and generous. And I just got such a, a buzz from asking them, which I never would have done if I hadn't permission because I was on your show. So thank you so much. So I've written a few down. The thing that really surprised me that my friends all, a lot of them said, which I never would have said they would have said about me was that I'm funny. <laughs> and so a lot of them said, oh, you're good fun. You're funny. I always laugh. And not that I, would, I knew they'd come away feeling good about me, but I never would have called myself funny. So that was a real revelation. And then I just captured a couple of the good ones. But the list is quite long because I did indulge in this. So forgive me. Um, the wing woman every person needs. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I love that. A good listener and a great advice giver. A friend for good and tough times. Kind, fierce, always looks to help everyone who comes her way. Infinite drive and ambition. An absolute beam of light in the darkest times. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> I said, told you. I'd be like, oh my God. Um, a top boss. Professional, precise, powerful, but also a more vulnerable, real side. Not afraid to have a laugh and a cry and get messy with the everyday stuff. I, I said I said all the crying emojis to that one. I said, they're happy tears, but oh my God, thank you. <sighs> she really understands we were all complicated as a friend. She's there for all of it. And I saved my best to last, which is from Jenny, who I mentioned earlier, uh, my favorite white witch. Oh, wow. I love that. God, what a lovely group of friends as well. <laughs> I felt very lucky, yes. <laughs> and do they like doing karaoke with you as well? Because my, my last question for you is, do you do you like karaoke? And do you have a karaoke go-to song? Yes, I, I haven't actually done karaoke very much because I am the world's worst singer. <laughs> my family always tell me, don't sing, mummy. And my husband goes, you can't sing, can you? I'm like, no, I really can't. So I really can't. <laughs> If I was to inflict my lack of talent on the world, <laughs> it would be to Bon Jovi living on a prayer. Yeah, fabulous. Because <laughs> when I was fourteen, I had an eighteen-year-old brother, so uh, and he was a massive John Bo John Bon Jovi fan back then. <laughs> well, I think I think that's got to be uh, definitely on the cards because I think everyone can sing, and you just need a little bit of practice that's all <laughs> now, tamara i love your optimism and positivity but i'll i'll go for a zombie apocalypse any day <laughs> fair enough <laughs> well sally thank you so much for being on the podcast it's been an absolute delight and before we finish our kind of uh, way that we do things is we just give you a little bit of the platform at the end is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't or do you have any closing thoughts Great question. I love this because I asked this of my clients as well. So uh, I, I was like, oh, that's a goodie. I guess there's a couple. I, I trusted myself to do this live when we spoke because I knew it would come. And I think one thing I've, I've become very proud of this year that I haven't mentioned yet is that I was um, invited to join Wackle earlier this year, which just really helped me in terms of that tribe piece. You know, there's Lots of people there I've known over the years, lots of friends, old and new. And I think that organization, I think they haven't always got it right, but I think they are a, a group of incredible, inspiring humans who are genuinely committed to driving positive change for women in the workplace across all walks of life and seniority. Um, I think the reason I mention them is, A, because I'm just so thrilled to now play my part as part of that group, but also just to celebrate any body of people who get together and give their time freely and create 
a body and a movement that does good in the world. And I think for anyone listening, um, just check, you know, who are your tribes? My tribes have, have, made, have lit me up. They've changed my life. I mentioned the RTW one, you know, Wackle being one. Lots of other tribes in the background, my friendship tribe, my family tribe. So just check in with yourself and say, who are my tribes? And am I, am I part of the right tribes? Am I playing my role? And what can we all do to be better together? Because that's what I truly believe in. We are better together. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.